Yeah, and I think over the last five years that I've been in in our industry, the awareness around the lack of access to products for a lot of people who menstruate, whether it be financial issues or whether it just be not being able to easily access products at a store in their area or just having very limited selection at the store in their area, it's growing. And there are many issues out there that have big causes around them that are are very solvable. And this seems like one of them, a, a pretty easy one that could be solved. And I know there are financial implications, but if, if this is a normal part of life for 51% of the population, then it should be an easy fix to make sure that portion of the population has access to these products because it's not something they can prevent. I, I really like the comparison to toilet paper. Why don't we just do what we've done with toilet paper, what we do with, with period products? They're free in bathrooms, whether it's a public bathroom or a private bathroom, restaurant, hotel, whatever. People are not stealing hordes of toilet paper. This is what a lot of people think. Oh, if we have free period products, we're going <laughs> to steal them. Okay. All right. No. You know, and then there's cheaper toilet paper in public places sometimes. But then if you as an individual consumer want that nice three-ply for your tushy, you can go ahead and spend the five bucks on those rolls of toilet paper. Go nuts. Mm. And that's the way we should look at it. This is a problem that by and large, at least here in the U.S., has been solved. And let's not reinvent the wheel. Of course, menstruation and menstrual health is a little bit more complicated because there's more social dynamics involved, but that's a great example of where we can be going. Welcome back to the fourth episode in our series on menstrual health. In the last three episodes, you've heard an overview on menstrual health and the menstrual cycle from Danielle Kaiser at Matami and gotten a high-level overview of the market size the major brands and their market share, and trends in the market from Jan O'Regan at Cotton Inc. On today's episode, we'll be exploring some additional mega trends in the world of menstrual health on a much deeper level by continuing our discussion with Danielle Kaiser. We have a lot to cover with Danielle, and I know our listeners are really going to find what Danielle shares to be incredibly valuable, like I did. So we'll dive right into the intro and the rest of the interview with Danielle. Welcome to Attached to Hygiene, the podcast that enables you to grow your knowledge and influence in the disposable hygiene industry. I'm your host, Jack Hughes, Global Digital Marketing Manager for Bostic's Disposable Hygiene Business Unit. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the consumer push for sustainability and transparency, the role of social enterprises in this evolution of the menstrual health market, what product trends are driving the market, and what industry players and producers can do to better respond to these shifts. Before we play the interview, I want to make one quick request of our listeners. I love making this podcast, and I want Bostic to continue to create the best possible show for the disposable hygiene industry. The best way for us to do that is by getting feedback from you, our listeners. So we'd like to ask all of our listeners to take a quick three-minute survey to share your feedback on the show. You can tell us what you like, what you don't like, and even let us know what you'd like us to cover in future episodes. And as a thank you for filling out the survey, we'll send you our brand new Corporate Social Responsibility White Paper. The white paper will cover topics such as the importance of sustainable production and design, responsible manufacturing, the consumer need for safety and transparency, 
circularity and hygiene, and more. We won't be sharing access to the white paper with anyone else for weeks. So if you want early access, please take three minutes out of your day to complete the survey. To fill out the survey, go to attachedtohygiene.com and click the big button at the top of the page to share your feedback. We'll also share the link for the survey in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time. And now we'll get back to the episode. So I want to dive deeper into consumer trends and what you're seeing from consumers. So what are some of the consumer trends you're seeing in the, the world of menstrual health that, that you think are important and are going to drive the industry forward? Yeah, so uh, I think a lot of these trends right now are really focused on climate change and environmentally friendlier solutions. So what's important to note here is like millennials and Gen Z consumers are just demanding better and more responsible solutions and kind of slowly rejecting the norm. On the consumption side, consumers are really trying to reduce waste where possible, you know, either looking for more natural options or more durable or reusable options and are looking to menstrual cups and reusable panties and pads. Um, what's interesting to note is I think we've seen a lot more uptake during COVID because a lot of people have been stuck at home and there was kind of resistance before, but now if you're stuck at home, if you leak or it doesn't work out or whatever fears you had for trying this new option, you're at home so you can kind of take care of it. So mm -hmm. I think that's also uh, quite an interesting trend. And a lot of activism is really driving this. Um, I think we can't disregard or not acknowledge how powerful some of this activism is. There's a end period plastic campaign that has been going active on social media because people see that there's just like hundreds and thousands of discarded Tampax applicators that are littering, you know, waterways and rivers and beaches. And I think we need to understand that consumers are gaining more power, you know, because of social media and beyond, and they're becoming increasingly informed and increasingly mistrusting of big brands. And as a result, businesses really need to work hard to keep up with customers. And this advocacy is not just happening in a vacuum. It's also leading to policy and regulatory change to create more transparency, responsibility and safety, and producers have to respond to that. So I'm sure you had other people talk about, you know, the menstrual product stand, uh, menstrual product regulations that have been happening both here um, in the states and abroad, particularly in California and New York. I'm sure many other states will be following suit shortly. And I think the point to bring across here is that companies can no longer ignore these social trends as these cultural shifts are really like leading to pivotal marketing shifts as well. Yeah, and that's a, a nice little promo as well. We'll be having an episode on on uh, regulations as well, uh, particularly in the United States with, with an organization here. But a lot of the things that are happening in New York and California are based off of regulations that are already being put in place in Europe. So you know, Europe is usually on the leading edge of that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I, I liked what you said about brands having to work harder because that that is what is happening. And, and, you know, you see people kind of holding the brands to task, but also holding retailers to task, you know, your, your car fours, your targets, you know, they not only want to see better options for themselves and for the planet in the store shelves, but they want to see the options that aren't good for themselves or the planet out of there. You know, they yeah. don't, yeah, it's, it's nice to see that 
it's not just about you know what I can do and what I can afford, but also helping people who who can't by saying these cheaper options need to be better for everybody, not just for it's not just the people who can afford the the name brand brands, mm-hmm. which is great to see. It, it it should be up and down. It's not it's not shouldn't be reserved for the people who can afford to buy the most expensive products. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, to to add on to that or to dovetail. Coming back to the social enterprises and these kind of like startup companies, consumers are really starting to buy products and support brands that truly understand them. And this mistrust kind of comes from like, well, this brand doesn't know me at all. It's like selling me this pink thing, just white women in the advertisement, you know, that that doesn't resonate with the the overall majority anymore. The majority of the population. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of these, which are being coined as femtech brands, are female founded, they're bold, um, and they're really delivering value more than commercial brands ever really had. You know, they're helping to educate their uh, customers and they're also just speaking to their unique desires and, and identities. And this is really resulting in kind of this increasing level of trust in both the efficacy of the product to actually address women's needs, but then the brand itself to be a lifestyle brand. And I think what's really uh, interesting to note here is, particularly in the U.S., like attention to racial equities and inequity in the healthcare system has really prompted a lot of these femtech founders to create platforms that monitor data on how women of color in particular are experiencing the healthcare system. And from these data points, they're then creating better experiences, right? So it's really interesting that we see kind of intersectional lens of gender and uh, women's rights really being laid on top of or intersecting with uh, a lot of the medical racism and overall systemic inequalities that has to do with race too. Um, And realizing there's a lot of people who have been like shut out of market opportunities because the products, for example, like a great example I always mention is gussets. Like there's like standard gusset size for pads uh, in this country. But like if you're a larger woman, a little tiny gusset size is like going to cover half of your labia. Mm-hmm. And so many women have to like patch pads together, you know, like two and two in the front and one in the back because, you know, they're, they're more likely to leak when they're sleeping. And why are we having to patch pads together? It's 2022. Buying three times as many products. And (laughs) like, let's just make products that are, you know, meant for different sizes of people. So, you know, instead of seeing women's bodies as problems to be solved, uh, these new companies are seeing them as real people. And not only that, they're like excelling at building community, Um, ceiling connection, having feedback loops constantly, and really creating these lifestyle brands around their products. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 really interesting to see how agile these brands can be, and it's because they're so they're so in tune with with what's going on with their audience. And as you said, they built this community who's willing to share information back with them, and then they're using the information that they're already gaining from their apps and from you know the products they're selling and and you know their e- e-commerce sites and and using that to advance their products. And as you said, they're tying things back into the full cycle, the the full monthly cycle, not just the part where where women are bleeding, but the other you know <laughs> three weeks of the month. 
that are still very important and and can, as as we've already mentioned, being aware of what's going on in those phases can lead to a healthier lifestyle because you you know what your body's trying to tell you. Yeah, definitely. One thing I wanted to mention here is that a lot of the women who start these companies only have started their companies because they couldn't find what they were looking for. And so you have people crafting things based on their own needs and the needs of other women like them who weren't able, you know, the market was not providing them with what they needed. So they're like, I'll do it myself. And yeah. that is really interesting, right? Because now you have like consumer and uh, business in one. And yeah. when it comes down to like the core of the matter, they're doing a good job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, kind of trying to stay on top of the trends in the industry and, and what's changing. I mean, for sure, you're seeing stuff in, in adult incontinence, you're seeing stuff in baby care with new players, new entrants, and and consumers also demanding better products, different products, and and seeing some of those entrepreneurs not finding what they needed and starting new new brands, new companies. But it seems a lot more prevalent in, in fem, feminine health. Uh, the, the the number of new players in the industry, you know, we with some of the publications in our industry, you see some of the articles every year about new producers and and what they're doing and and whether it's a focus on lifestyle, whether it's a focus on on uh, sustainability. That's where you see a lot of the growth and where you're seeing all the new players and and it seems like it's a lot. It seems to be a lot easier for some of these new feminine health brands to kind of get up and running and and find a footing and find a, an audience and, and a, a market. Yeah. And, you know, with femtech uh, investments also starting to soar, they're accessing capital. Mind you, it's still very, very difficult and there's not nearly as much funding as there should be. But in the last two years, there's been an increase, a huge increase in VC funding that's going towards these kind of risky young enterprises. And uh, there's a great NGO called Femtech Focus that we're great partners with that really do a good job of kind of looking at the Femtech landscape and uh, where uh, areas have really kind of exploded and where opportunity exists into the future. Yeah. And I think it can only, it's only good for the industry because it's good for the consumer. And so it's, it's driving the industry forward and, and yes, brands, our customers have to work harder, but overall it's good because the innovation that you're seeing is benefiting consumers. And so you're, you're kind of driving everything forward. And, and so to me, it's very interesting and fun to see. And it, it's, it's exciting because it, it, in my opinion, it, it's all good. It's all good because the consumers are really the focus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, women are just not, not a niche market. Sorry. You know, like 51. <laughs> yeah. Whoever uh, thought that. <laughs> it's really mistaken. Yeah. A little simplistic there. <laughs> so with some of those innovations that you're talking about and the growing demands and different demands from consumers, what are some of the interesting product innovations that you're seeing? Yeah, so there are some interesting things out there, uh, particularly that are maybe more on the reusable side of the equation. So there's been an increase of menstrual cups and discs on the market. And, you know, menstrual cups are not just for millennials who care about the environment anymore. There's really been a sea change in terms of people understanding their value. And I think they've also become helpful in helping women be less grossed out by their bodies 
because they can actually see how much they're bleeding, check out the texture, if they want, you know, even measure the amount to see if they're in a normal bleeding range. And, you know, different shapes and sizes are being developed to fit longer versus shorter vaginal canals or shorter cervixes. Those with disabilities or those in water-scarce environments, um, you know, vaginal canals are just like our faces. Like everyone is different and, you know, we can draw some generalizations, but usually when you're searching for a menstrual cup, the first one doesn't always work for you. You know, there's, it's a little bit of an investment in figuring out like, oh, I need a softer material or, uh, you know, a longer stem. Uh, maybe a disc is even better because it's, it's more wide than deep. And I think giving people the opportunity to explore that is quite exciting. Another area where I think innovation is really soared is in period panties. And we see different underwear styles that are emerging, not just these kind of like boring panties, but really beautiful things like almost like lingerie-esque lace and nice colors and nice textures. They almost look too nice to be period panties. But again, they're seeing what women actually want and what they would buy and charging higher price points for that. So the mm -hmm. material look is, is changing. And important to this is that the brand in a lot of these period panties is key. Thinks in the U.S., I think they were the major one to start in the market. Uh, they had really bold campaigns that went into the New York metro station. And it really spurred this kind of cult love around period panty brands that we're seeing happen also in Germany where I live. There's a couple of period panty brands that are following suit with really speaking to the woman and not just talking about periods all the time and giving them options and choices to look sexy when they're menstruating. What a concept, right? Uh, <laughs> in, in tampon innovation, we're seeing that tampons are changing shape and design, calls for a better fit, things that are softer or actually like moisture added in to prevent leaks or make them more comfortable. We're seeing like added features that create more health benefits, whether it's like detecting things or reducing pain or enhancing vaginal flora, probiotics, vitamin CBD. There's a lot of things that are being added to tampons. And there's a few really interesting innovations around uh, like products that are collecting the menstrual blood and actually monitoring and screening them potentially for health and biomarkers. So being able to like send that into a lab or there's even one that is in R&D where on the back of the pad, if you scan it with your phone in an app that's developed, you'll be able to see biomarkers around your DNA, RNA, the proteins or epigenetic markers from your uterine lining or importantly, your hormone levels or even STD detection, right? Like we're sitting with this incredible resource in our bodies that literally gets dumped down the toilet every month. <laughs> it is responsible for creating life. It's what we all grew up in for the first nine months of our lives. And it's just being tossed away. And so there's really exciting research on the biomedical side of things around like utilizing menstrual blood to help with, with more health. And then the last thing is the alternative ingredients. So some of these may be better for the body, but not necessarily for the environment. You know, new testing is showing that organic cotton pads, whereas they're better for the body, might not be better for the environment because the biomaterials are heavier and perform pretty poorly in sustainability indexes due to the water and transportation costs. So to that point, 
like younger women are preferring more natural or renewable materials in their tampons. And I think in the future, like a place like Germany, which is where I've been the last 12 years, 10 years, we've seen that because they have a normalized recycling culture, they're going to see a higher uptake and like a real fast acceleration of these kind of products into the market because they're already kind of trained to separate their garbage and turn off the lights. And we see in those European markets that these things have really skyrocketed in their, in their markets. A few of the natural materials that I think are growing fast and are quite low maintenance are made of hemp. There's an interesting uh, company in Germany that's doing things with seaweed and actually like binning fibers from seaweed. And that's really cool because seaweed is one of the most sustainable materials on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm quite excited to see how hemp will at first probably like work with cotton and then maybe in the future when there's a established hemp lobby and a little bit more professionalization and acceptance of the of the material, how it could possibly even take over because uh, of its conditions in which it can be grown. Yeah. Yeah. I know one of the industry publications just did a write-up on sustainability and, and feminine health and cycle care. And the two kind of key players in the article were both hemp product producers. So definitely growing in the U.S. I think at a, as you said, a slower pace than than Europe and probably a slower pace than some people would like to see, myself included, but it's moving, it's moving and that and that's good. And I, I'm very interested to see the, the seaweed because as you said, yeah, it's an incredibly sustainable fiber material and, and there's a ton of uses for it, you know, outside of food <laughs> which, which I think a lot of people just assume, but yeah, it's it's the seaweed. Seaweed will be a really interesting kind of crop, if you will, to see how it how it grows and what kind of products it gets used in or used for in the coming years, because it's uh it's it's one of those helpful crops that, that are that are gonna benefit the planet for sure. Mm -hmm. And there's an abundance of it. There's so much of it. One of the other things to add here is that there's just more of a focus on the product life cycle and thinking through disposal as well. And if we look at places like India that have really poor waste management systems, this is a, a new new market. What happens if those brands actually saturate the market? Like you will not be able to walk around the streets. Mm. It's already proving difficult because waste management is not thorough there. And innovations that look at compostable or uh, biodegradable solutions there's a great innovation called Planera that has a flushable pad that actually flushes when it comes into contact with water on impact. Like the air and the water combination allows hmm. it to disintegrate. These kinds of things are going to be ever more important um, into the future because menstrual waste is a big deal. And if 51% of the population is menstruating for 40 years over the course of their lives, it's just going to become a bigger, bigger elephant in the room if we don't learn how to how to manage the full product life cycle. Yeah, and obviously it's not something that's unique to the the menstrual industry, but it's it's big. It's really big, and like you said, I mean, with 51% of the population for 40 years using several products every month, it, it adds up very, very quickly. And the industry's looking to grow. And, and as it should, is there a lot of benefits from you know, allowing young girls and women to go to school and go to work and, and, and live their lives by having access to products and, and kind of eliminating the stigma, the industry will grow. But as you said, the elephant in the room is addressing all the waste from that. And, and the industry is, is 
taking note of that and and there are changes, but it's it's going to be a little while and the problem's not going away anytime soon for sure. No. And oftentimes it's a simple calculation. I think on average, a woman will use, or a menstruator, will use 11,000 tampons in her life or 14,000 pads. Wow. Let's just multiply that by the state of California, you know, (laughs) (laughs) or I don't know, Vietnam. And those numbers are extraordinary. And I think we need to start thinking about profit in a very different way, right? Like who's profiting if we can't even walk walk around on yeah. the, the planet Earth, right? Yeah. And you know, ba- I think baby diapers get a lot of a lot of press. They they're bigger, they're they're both dealing with bodily fluids, but I think maybe the the hazards and downside to to baby diapers, I think maybe are more obvious to people, not that they're worse or better, but they're just more obvious. But I think a baby, I think it's 4,000 diapers over the course of the three years or so. So just kind of pales in comparison to 14,000. And obviously there's the difference in weight and size and all that. But it's, to me, the menstrual products in their disposal is something that I think is overlooked at times. And I'm glad to see it's changing because it's it's important. And some of these new brands in the industry are, are addressing it. And, and that's that's good. It, it's, yeah. it's only good for the industry and the environment. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't see a future where everyone everywhere is using menstrual cups. Some people simply, they can be the biggest menstrual advocates in the world, but they simply don't like the feeling of having a menstrual cup inside of their vagina for a few days. It's fine. Yeah. Um, I don't foresee that happening, but we're aware of this now. We can have foresight to kind of steer people or what I really enjoyed about the hygienics uh, presentation next to me was uh, a woman named Heidi Beatty from Crown Abbey. You know, mm-hmm. she's talking about not either or, it's and. You know, there's already mixing. People are using menstrual cups with a disposable pad. They're using their tampon with their period panties. And these big brands uh, and small brands can't be looking at the other as the enemy there is cohabitation. It's already happening. Newsflash. We need to meet consumers where they are and where they where they desire to feel the most comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> so we've talked about the changing consumer expectations and, and some of the empowerment there. Talked about how brands in the industry, particularly some of these up-and-coming brands, but also we're seeing it with some of the major brands who are, are responding. With all of that, where do you see the the menstrual health industry moving? Hmm. So I think that the menstrual health industry needs to be moving towards kind of understanding that there's an aging market demographic shift that's going on. And, you know, the ones that are already using alternatives to commercial products like cups or panties, they're going to be parenting in their raising their kids to do the same thing. If they've already said no to those things, then in 20 years, their kids are probably not going to either. So that's that's something to keep in mind. And the industry has been largely focused on profits in large markets like the US, um, but you know, low to middle income countries are increasingly becoming digital which means that they're accessing new knowledge, education, and activism around menstrual health, which means that the upper middle class in those countries are going to start desiring the same things 
that are happening here. So these are actually huge opportunities. I think the future of the industry also really relies on responding to calls for more diversity and inclusion, both within the companies themselves and within the marketing of those companies' products, creating space for women at menstrual product companies, at Hygienics. I was so alarmed to see how many men were there making decisions around pads and tampons. It was really shocking to me. You know, there was like a handful of women there and you know, the more I got to talk to them, they were they were cool with talking about periods, but there seemed to be a little bit of a disconnect in terms of actually understanding the problem and the needs. So creating space like internally and externally, a lot of campaigns that inspire us are focusing on the issue and menstruation and, and how integral of an experience this is. And then they make great products around that. The reality is that there are different identities, there's different bodies, there's different pains, there's different stresses, and we need to be like speaking to those different bodies and identities and pains and stresses. The future of the industry, I think, also revolves around this notion of informed choice. You know, menstruators should be aware of and have access to the full suite of products that meet their needs, like period. And if one month they want to use period panties and then the next month they want to use disposable pads and the next month they want to free bleed on a blanket that they bought, great. As long as they're not hurting anyone and they feel empowered in their choices, like, let's do it. One last thing that I see happening or I would like to see in the future of the menstrual industry is more social impact. I see a lot of companies kind of just operating to solve and provide products without having an internal social impact strategy. And if you've had your ear to the wind in the last few years, the topic of period poverty, not a term I like to use, but it does get people in, has become front and center in terms of talking about inequality and inequity and the high cost of products and access to those being a, you know, a matter of human rights. And if those brands don't have a social impact strategy that is somehow, some way related to trying to eradicate period poverty, then they're going to lose out because that's one of the biggest issues, right, is access to these products, whether it's the products themselves or access to water needed to take care of a menstrual cup or disposal needed to get rid of the used menstrual material this social impact and like giving back and making sure that that full suite of conditions is available to people. This is, this is significant. Yeah. And I think over the last five years that I've been in, in our industry, the, the awareness around the lack of access to products for a lot of people, a lot of people who menstruate, whether it be financial issues or whether it just be not being able to easily access products at a store in their area or just having very limited selection at the store in their area, it's growing. It's growing. And there are many issues out there that have big causes around them that are are very solvable. And this seems like one of them, a, a pretty easy one that could be solved. And I know there are financial implications and and stuff like that. But if if this is a normal part of life for 51% of the population, then it it should be an easy fix to make sure that that portion of the population has access to these products because it's not something they can prevent. You know, without 
drugs or, or you know, as you alluded to earlier with medications and stuff, but that that's not natural. So if this is a natural thing, let's, let's solve it. Let's have well, action for that. Kind of like, I, I really like the comparison to toilet paper. Why don't we just do what we've done with toilet paper? You know, what we do with, with uh, period products, you know, they're free in bathrooms, whether it's a public bathroom or a private bathroom, restaurant, hotel, whatever, people are not stealing hordes of toilet paper. This is what a lot of people think. Oh, if we have free period products, <laughs> we're going to steal them. Okay. All right. No. You know, and then there's cheaper toilet paper in public places sometimes. But then if you as an individual consumer want that nice three-ply, you know, for your tushy, you can go ahead and spend the five bucks on those rolls of toilet paper. Go nuts, you know? Yeah. And that's the way we should look at it. This is a problem that, by and large, at least here in the U.S., has been solved. And let's not reinvent the wheel. Of course, menstruation and menstrual health is a little bit more complicated because there's more social uh, dynamics involved. But that's a great example of uh, <laughs> where we can be going, where everyone yeah. has toilet paper and it's not a big deal that's a great comparison one i i hadn't thought of but i love because you're you're absolutely right it's uh <laughs> it's pretty... poop, right yeah. everybody's poop and there's toilet people there most most of the time uh, when you need it yeah yep and I, I wanted to ask you you mentioned you don't love the term period poverty is there a, a preferred term or is yeah I'm, I'm happy you asked that question so Period poverty to us at the Menstrual Health Hub and Madami is problematic because it problematizes the act of menstruation being like the individual's responsibility that you're in poverty because of your period, right? Like because you have all these extra needs, you're in poverty. Truth is, if you're experiencing period poverty, you're experiencing poverty in general. If you can't afford pads or tampons, you probably can't afford a new pair of shoes or broccoli or any of the other human needs. And so it's really kind of used as a sensationalistic term to bring people in, which I think is okay. You know, it's like, Ooh, what's that period poverty? It's very emotive. Poor girls are being held back because of their periods. It's, it's nice. But once we get into the arena and we have people's attention, I think it's really important that we talk about menstrual equity because this is actually the the state that we want to be in, right? Where um, legislatively and on the ground, there's equitable access to the things that we need. And, you know, let's like talk about menstrual, like lack of menstrual materials or a lack of period products or lack of education, you know, like let's get specific as to what it is. Um, we're actually going to be writing a thought piece later this year on period poverty and why we don't like the term and why don't we like to, why we don't like to use it, but we're also very thankful to it because it has gotten a lot more people engaged in talking about it. The other thing that's a little problematic about period poverty is that it enables people to throw pads at the solution as the solution, just like, Oh, you know, here have some pads and everything's fixed. No, it's not how it works. Like poverty is very systemic. How do they get into poverty in the first place? Why are pads and tampons, $8 a box and then tax. And then if we remove that tax, great. 
43 cents was taken off of that. It's still an unaffordable box of pads and tampons. It, it kind of uh, washes over the more systemic structural issues that we need to be talking about when it comes to, to poverty and gender. I appreciate that perspective. It's certainly a term I've I've used and Bostic has used on, you know, social media talking about stuff. So it's good to have, you know, words matter. And so having that awareness is the only way you can improve similar to using, as we've talked about earlier, using menstrual health as opposed to hygiene. It's important because dealing with the lack of materials or dealing with just menstruation in general can be stressful enough uh, in, in its own ways. So we don't need to add to that by putting harmful or, or inaccurate language around it. Yep. I'm so happy you mentioned that because this week we are launching the glossary for the global menstrual movement together with period.org, which is the U.S.'s most well-known menstrual equity organization. They have many, many chapters, probably I think around the world, but mostly in the U.S., um, we've come together to create a compendium of 60 different terms that are all around menstrual advocacy. And we really have spent good time in defining and referencing and adding additional reading materials for uh, many of these terms so that people can be on the same page about what we're talking about when we're talking about menstruation or menstrual health versus menstrual hygiene. And it's, it's quite exciting because this is exactly what you said, you know, language matters. And if we don't have language to talk about problems, then there's no way we're going to be able to solve them. Yeah. And, and as you kind of alluded to earlier with your, you know, surprise at the number of men in the industry at, at hygienics and, and by no means saying that having men in the industry is a bad thing, but if you're not educated on on the language and the issues and what consumers are dealing with, what people who are using the products are dealing with, then you can't produce a good product to solve those issues. And people are actually saying, "Wait, wait, wait! This doesn't work." Before you're kind of just like, "Sit down, shut up, take what you can, <laughs> take what's given to you." And in many parts of the world, unfortunately, it's still like that. But as we're seeing education levels rise and incomes rise for women and I don't have to sit down, shut up, and take that anymore. If, if, if it's not working for me, why can't I say that? No, you've got options. Yeah. <laughs> you've got options, and you're you're aware of them, and you have access to them. And absolutely, absolutely. So, with kind of shown where you think the industry is going, and you you alluded to this earlier with with the discussion around kind of lifestyle brands as opposed to just products or or period products. So, what are the opportunities that you see beyond just periods. Mm -hmm. So beyond periods, which, you know, there's plenty of opportunities there as well. I think it's important for us to look throughout the cycle, really getting to understand what is happening there and what are some of the challenges that people are experiencing, looking into like vaginal dryness, for example, or too much vaginal moisture, you know, like Every woman, even sisters and sisters, are so completely different and really making sure that there's attention that's given to that. Because if we think that periods are taboo, like what's vaginal dryness or miscarriage, you know, there's, there's so many other issues that we haven't even scratched the surface of. Beyond periods, I think like we're seeing a lot of um, at-home testing and diagnostics. Um, you know, now that we can buy COVID tests at home, I think this is 
spurring a lot of other kinds of testing we can be doing, whether it's saliva testing of our hormones or using menstrual blood for testing our hormones. These kind of create these like smart tech enabled solutions so that we can sit in the driver's seat of our own health. Beyond that, I see that there's a lot around this UI and bladder control and these other fluids throughout the cycle and also around perimenopause. So a big misconception that people have is like they use the word menopause instead of perimenopause. So like menarche, which I explained in the beginning of the podcast, the menopause or menopause is one moment in time, 12 months after she has stopped bleeding. So this is just like, it's a noun, right? Menopause. And everything before that is perimenopausal, whether it's like five years or 10 years or just that one year, this time when the body is kind of like out of whack again, like it was in the beginning when she was 10 to 15, it's the body closing down this cycle. And there's a lot of stuff that's happening here. And I think the the needs of perimenopausal women are not really discussed at all, whether it's changing body temperatures or hair loss or brittle nails. Um, there's so many things that are happening during this time that are just starting to get the attention that they deserve. And wildly enough, this is when women are in the most economically advantageous times of their life, right? Like kids are probably old enough to be out the door so they've got more disposable income. Maybe they're creeping towards retirement so they have more time. And maybe they've been working in their careers for 25 or 30 years. So they've got some disposable income. And it's just insane that in the last two to five years, menopause, perimenopause is starting to get some attention. So looking across the life cycle, and not like giving women the death sentence if they don't become mothers and really looking at their health as the most important thing, I think is going to be pivotal to the next, the next generation. And just really seeing women beyond their reproductive capabilities. In society, we like congratulate women when they become pregnant, so much around this. And then you know, the next big life event is becoming a grandmother. It's like, well, what about all about that time in between? Like, are we literally just meant to take care of children? No, like we're, we're so much more dynamic individuals and, you know, capable of great change and, and great progress as well. So I would like to see, and I, I do see a lot more focus on older women too. Yeah, absolutely. They're a huge subset of this 51% of the population, a lot of disposable income in, in, in most cases, and they're a, an untapped market for, for some of this stuff. And it, it's not like some of them go through it and some of them don't. Pretty much all of them are going to experience it. So it's, uh, yeah. It, well, it, it, actually, I mean, a lot of them are taking HRT, hormone replacement therapy, because they can't deal with a lot of those side effects. Like the, oh, okay. The, the hot flashes are too intense. And it's really interesting, like women that are more likely to take HRT are those that were probably likely to take hormonal birth control throughout the course of their reproductive period and were less psych cyclically aware. So okay. see just like layers and layers of medicating a problem or medicating a state rather than 
experiencing the highs and the lows of the menstrual cycle free from hormonal interventions. So I think there's, there's going to be a really, really interesting shift here where a lot more science and studies are coming out that are focused on women's health in more meaningful ways that provide the actual evidence base for innovation to occur. And, you know, our bodies are very different and we can't just have one size fits all solutions, just like you wouldn't give like hormone, you know, someone who has like uh, overactive or underactive hormones, you wouldn't give them all the same size dose of medication, right? Yeah. Take their BMI and kind of understand like, okay, this smaller person maybe takes this many grams and this, you know, larger person takes this many grams. Why don't we apply that to women's health? You know, it's the same thing with birth control. You know, everyone takes the same kind of pill with the same amounts. And it's like, wait, 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 wait. Like we're not just one group. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, things are starting to change a little bit, but that's how it's been for a very long time. And I'm hoping that this research around vaccines just enables the clinical world to be making more women-centered solutions. Yeah. Yeah, stuff that you miss when you're not, when you don't experience it. <laughs> I don't experience some of this stuff, so it's easy to, to miss. And now I know to ask the question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So kind of last last couple points here our primary audience is is brands and and players in the hygiene industry and so i i'd like for them to be able to walk away from your your experience your research your opinion what are some recommendations for them to better address the needs around and some of these trends around menstrual health mm -hmm. i think there are quite a few places that industry players can be putting their energy and attention to right now based on everything that I shared. And I would love to be in touch with those people to help navigate some of these choppy waters because this industry and this landscape is changing very rapidly. And the menstrual health space looked very different one year ago as it does today. And it will look different in one year. First things really come down to the product and really consciously developing alternatives to chemicals and plastics in menstrual products. I think that they just, they don't need to be there and we can do better in terms of not polluting our bodies and the environment. And yeah, it will take a lot of R&D, but it's, it's possible. I think that we can be taking heed of the entire product life cycle and really thinking about disposal in a more meaningful way, maybe partnering with local sanitation departments and I wonder, like, if we could go back 20 years and brands did think about this, like, what would it look like? Where do we have, like, menstrual waste in our own homes where, or like the, the trash collectors is a separate place for menstrual waste and then it's processed differently? How can that keep us more safe and secure? I think that if we look inside of the companies themselves, there really needs to be internal and external social impact strategies that are built into everything that they're doing around this space. Education around menstruation is not going anywhere. Issues around access are not going anywhere. And conversations about gender equality are not going anywhere. And what does that look like if you practice what you preach? Is there a flexible work policy where female employees are maybe able to take menstrual leave or work flexibly? Are there free pads and tampons or other materials stocked in the bathrooms? Is there 
and this is a big one, is there a, a sink or a faucet in the actual bathroom cabin for those that are using cups or panties or a reusable pad for them to be able to manage that process with dignity? It's a small but a really big change, right? Yeah. That could make all the difference for someone feeling uh, more comfortable in their workplace. And then lastly is, you know, really thinking critically about external innovation, really thinking about how that innovation can be done externally, like corporate venture capital arms, you know, like we're going to invest in five femtech companies this year that are product adjacent and help them out with technical resources. What kind of relationships can we be developing where we're learning from them and there's a shared value partnership with some of these big players in the space. So we're really happy to kind of be that broker or the middle middlemen, middle women in between a lot of those innovative companies and like working more in unison. And instead of seeing all of these new players as competitors, they're actually comrades and having a new prize. Like the eye, keeping your eye on the prize is that we want menstruation to be as little of a problem as possible for Mm -hmm. all who experience it. They got all the education that they need. They got all the access that they need. They got all the products that they need. They're fully equipped to talk to their daughters about it. They're fully aware of how to chart their cycles. And that's the prize, I really believe. And that really needs to be authentic and not just be oriented towards the bottom line. Of course, there's money to be made here, but like pads and tampons are not the most profitable industry. It'll never, ever be the most profitable thing. It's actually a very resource intensive endeavor, you know, to, to make pads and tampons. There's not a huge uh, profitability margin um, unless you're really, 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 really able to scale. But even then, I think we need to be putting people at the center of it instead Mm -hmm. of profit. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, (laughs) I have nothing to add to that. (laughs) That is is, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Good. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that you could create the space to be able to talk about these things and really dissect them for this industry. Um, you know, I had such a great time at Hygienics and made a lot of great contacts. And it's just like we're we're floating in the same world, but there's walls between us. Mm-hmm. And I really want to break down some of those walls so that we can see that we're all kind of working towards and on the same topic. And if there's anything that any one of your partners or, or anyone listening needs help with understanding or like trying to sort out, because it is complicated, you know, all the things I'm talking about with menstrual health, it's definitely not easy. We're here to help. That's our whole purpose is to be able to drive collective impact around the topic. Yeah. And I, I want to give you the opportunity to let us know how people can, can get in touch with you or, you know, I use, it's, it's a network, you know, it, it's a network. So if they want to join the network, if they want to contribute, or if they just want to have conversations, how can they do that? And then also an opportunity to discuss, you alluded to it earlier with the uh, glossary, but where they can find resources that are, you know, specific to, to menstrual health. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so um, we have two websites for Madami. It's madami.co and mhhub.org. On mhhub.org, there's so much information on there. Um, all of our past menstrual memos, I think we have like 55 menstrual memos now. They're kind of like these podcasts in terms of being really interesting nuggets of information that you can kind of scroll through and see all the changes over time. We also have our Knowledge Hive, which has these 1,700 free resources around menstrual health education, innovation, policy, and research. So, you know, if someone's planning a trip to Tanzania and they want to understand what menstruation, what the status is there, there's, you know, a plethora of research and resources they can sort through. Um, and that's free for anyone to use. And we're also working on this really great project called Decolonizing Menstrual Health, which is really looking at how we can understand the role of uh, racial inequality in the menstrual health space and speak or, or respond to the needs of non-white menstruators, since a lot of people working in this space look like me and are white and are kind of like setting the stage. We really want to make more space for all the amazing actors in the space that have just been doing really terrific work and kind of understand the ways in which like Western colonial attitudes have influenced the body to be seen as disgusting and very scientific rather than following intuition or working more with the cycle as a natural rhythm and also re-indigenizing the menstrual health space by talking to indigenous communities in North America and beyond. There's a lot of positive, positive experiences and rituals that are attached to menstruation as well, but they've been drowned out because it makes a better story to talk about how women are oppressed because of their periods. But in lots of little pockets of the world, there are some really exciting and beautiful things that we can look to and maybe even borrow from that um, will enable our daughters to feel good about the transition into womanhood or take on more practices that Native Americans had used around managing their periods and using more natural ingredients or actually resting, which is a big part of that luteal phase is resting and prioritizing rest, something that we in a increasingly capitalist culture just don't like to do but we all know it doesn't serve us <laughs> yeah and we'll we'll link to all that in the show notes and we'll we'll put contact information in there as well so that any any of our listeners can reach out to Madami or, or take advantage of, of those resources yeah and my email is danielle at mhhub.org it's very easy so if anyone wants to contact me they can just get get in touch directly perfect perfect well Danielle, thank you so much for taking the time to join our podcast. Yeah, this was incredibly helpful for me and informative for me. We covered a lot and, and I, I just really appreciate you taking the time and informing someone who has never experienced menstruation to be more informed and be a better advocate in the industry and, and a better advocate in my own household for, for these things. That's wonderful. You know, we really need more male champions for menstruation to just make us feel okay. You know, like it's normal, it's fine. You know, having a dad who's like, hey, let's go to the store. I'll get you anything that you need. You know, let's, you wanna try those? Let's try those too, let's try those. Like you have no idea how poignant that interaction is or, you know, having the opposite happen. So I, I really just hope that it comes across to, to men, like especially in a father-daughter role, how significant being accessible as a support touch point is for them throughout the course of their lives.
And it, it starts with having people like you who are willing to share experiences and share resources and, and educate and empower the men to then pass that on to their daughters or, or friends or family or, or whoever. Because like I said, we, we can't experience it. So it's good to have people who are you know, willing to share that side with us and allow us to, to learn. Yep. Learn and grow. That's the motto. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thanks again for having me. I look forward to future interactions and just really I'm grateful that we got to sit down today. So am I. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. In our next episode, we'll be exploring some of the changes in regulations and legislation in the United States when it comes to absorbent hygiene products. If you'd like to learn more about Matami, the Menstrual Health Hub, or any of the other materials and initiatives Danielle mentioned, you can find links to all of them in the show notes. Attached to Hygiene is brought to you by Bostic and is hosted by me, Jack Hughes. It is produced and edited by me with the help of Paul Andrews, Michelle Tonkovitz, Emery Chernis, and Nikki Ackerman at Green Onion Creative. Our theme music is by Jonathan Boyle. Once again, we'd like to extend a special thank you to our guest, Danielle Kaiser. You can find Danielle on LinkedIn or email her directly at danielle at mhhub.org. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.